So the big Vladimir Putin game surrounding Ukraine on three sides. Some belief in the West, not least from Boris Johnson, that he was about to launch a mass invasion on the entirety of the country. The worst potential war since 1945 in Europe was being talked about by us and indeed by the Americans late last night. Russian forces moved into those two eastern Ukraine provinces. Now, when I say Russian forces moved in, all the evidence is there have been Russian forces there for the last eight years. These are uh, very much breakaway states, but it was the official recognition of their independence last night prior to military vehicles moving in that gave us a clue towards the end of my show last night as to what the next stage of this was going to be. And I suppose Putin, having put the mega threat of the total invasion of Ukraine and the potential taking of Kiev on the table in our minds, having done this, will be expecting from us a muted response. Well, what's it been? In the case of us, sanctions on five Russian banks and three high net worth individuals thought to be accomplices and associates of Vladimir Putin. In the case of Germany, perhaps a bit of a surprise uh, with Chancellor Schultz announcing they would be stopping the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That did look like, actually in many ways, quite a big move. We don't yet know what the American response to this is going to be. Uh, the podium is there in the White House. We, th we thought that President Biden would speak on this over an hour ago, but I'm afraid when it comes to Biden's press conferences, um, and there it is, an hour and four minutes after he was expected, and he's still not there. So I guess they're still thrashing out the final details. This isn't straightforward, because the people that live in those two Ukrainian provinces, Donetsk and Luhansk, are overwhelmingly Russian speakers. If we held a referendum in those provinces and asked people, would they want to be part of Ukraine or part of Russia? They would say Russia, as indeed they did in Crimea. And I guess in many ways this all goes back to the breakup, the very rapid breakup of the Soviet Union or the breakaway satellite states. And within those states, there are pockets, in some cases quite large pockets, of people who still feel predominantly Russian. Vladimir Putin wants to rebuild what he sees as greater Russia. But is this 1936 all over again? Is this, as it was with Germany in those days, taking territories that they said were basically Germanic-speaking peoples, leading to the hideous global conflagration? I don't think it is. I expect that Putin does want, if he can, to extend a bit further. Does he want an all-out war with the West? Absolutely not. There is no way that he does. Does he want global domination? There is absolutely no way that he does. And I'm not condoning the way in which he deals with opponents, the poisoning, the assassinations. I'm not condoning military vehicles moving in last night. I'm expressing an understanding of what I think Putin is all about. But my question to you, the audience, tonight is what do you think we should do next? Let me know your views. Farage at GBNews.UK. Now, let's talk about Nord Stream 2. Let's talk about commodities. Let's talk about prices. Let's talk about energy policy. Because I think, Liam Halligan, GB News' economics editor, all of that has been brought into very much sharper focus today. Just explain to people what Nord Stream 2 actually is. Well, it's well known now, because we're in the middle of this conflict, 
that Russia uh, provides Western Europe with about 40% of the natural gas that we use. And that's been the case pretty much since Soviet days. And even during the Soviet Union, when the Cold War was, you know, absolutely front and centre of global events, that gas supply continued from the Soviet Union. Uh, what's happening now is that that gas supply, rather than going through Ukraine, it's increasingly going from the north of Russia, near St. Petersburg, across the floor of the Baltic Sea, just underneath Sweden and Denmark, straight into Germany. So it's marginalising Ukraine. And the fear among lots of Western analysts is that if, if Russia doesn't need Ukraine to have pipelines going across it, then there'll be less concern about political turmoil in Ukraine, so there might be some expansionism. Now, there are two Nord Stream pipelines. Just bear with me. Nord Stream 1 was started, was, was completed in 2011 between Russia and Germany. It didn't open until 2015 because, again, there was a lot of political aggro. That it was you know, pretty much nerds and commodity traders who understood it because there wasn't then a huge conflict. There'd been a conflict in 2008-9, with Georgia, but at that point, east-west tensions weren't huge. So Nord Stream 1 went through on the nod, but even that took four years from completion to it beginning. Nord Stream 2 is, an, is, is on, along the same route across the floor of the Baltic Sea, again, the longest undersea gas pipeline in the world. Uh, that was com is, It is complete. And what's now happened is that Germany, which helped it to be completed. Mm. It's partly owned by Gazprom, the Russian state giant, and Germany, and some of the other surrounding countries. Germany supported Nord Stream 2 for years, but at the very last moment, it's as it's about to be given the sign-off, it's been tested and, and the pressurised. And the Americans yeah. approved it. Yeah. Biden's approved it. The, the Americans have approved yeah. it, but now it's being used as a bargaining chip. It's not going to be allowed uh, to be used. The Germans have said no for now, but it absolutely is for now. You're not going to have that massive multi-billion pound pipeline providing Russian gas to Europe, gas it desperately needs. It's not going to sit there and do nothing when there's a pipeline next to it that is, that is working. So Nord Stream 2 will happen, but there's a lot of symbolism involved here. Mm. It's not being used for now in order for the West to try and exert some leverage. The Germans quite reluctantly, it must be said, uh, given this conflagration between Russia and Ukraine. And Liam, you know, we, it's not just gas that we get from Russia. Oh, no. There's oil that we get from Russia. There's nickel that we get from Russia. There's a whole host of commodities that come from Russia. What are the implications for pricing and commodity supply if these tensions escalate further? Well, Russia is an energy superpower. There's no getting away from it. It's also a food superpower. Russia's the world's biggest exporter of wheat, the Russians and the Ukrainians between them provide a third of the world's wheat almost, 20% of the world's corn, 80% of the world's sunflower oil. These are really important commodities that go into many, yeah. many products. So as things stand now, I must say, I've watched this very closely today, as I know you have, we've had many discussions about it. Mm. The sanctions that the UK's put on so far are pretty pretty lukewarm, pretty tepid. There are individuals oh, who don't even... three billionaires. Three people that don't even live in the UK. There are 31 <laughs> Russian companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. Nothing seems to be happening to them. So I don't... That's why the financial markets, the FTSE 100, it's ended up today because the sanctions could have been a lot worse. If this is the best the UK has got, then it's not very much, frankly, according to the financiers. 
But that doesn't mean that there won't be lower level sanctions and tit for tat things which will impact this cost of living crisis that being felt by many GB News viewers. For instance, Nigel, little noticed, the Russians have slapped an export ban on something called potassium nitrate. Now, you're a former commodity trader. You know what potassium nitrate is. It's the basic raw material for fertilizer. That's why farming friends of mine are phoning me saying, crikey, fertilizer <laughs> prices are going through the roof. It's yeah. not a joke yeah, because no, when fertilizer prices go up, Food becomes more expensive. We've already got a cost of living crisis in this country. We're already facing a triple whammy, higher energy bills, higher tax, higher inflation in April. If this Russia-Ukraine crisis escalates, if sanctions get tighter than they currently are, we could see well, even higher energy prices, petrol and diesel, and food prices so too. A lot will depend That's on the what, reality. A lot will depend on what Biden says in, in the next... In, indeed. ...when he finally... Well, I'm sure GB News would much prefer to hear from you particularly <laughs> and maybe me as well oh, than Joe Biden. No. But it's a serious point. We can beat our chest about sanctions and, you know, in many ways, sanctions are justified. There's some serious stuff going on in Donetsk and Luhansk, as you, me and GB yeah. News colleagues have been saying all day. But as they come to actually ink in those sanctions, Western leaders will be mindful of the impact of those Russian sanctions on the cost of living crisis, on living standards in the West, it's very real, on though. people who vote, on people whose support they need. Liam, thank you very much indeed. I'm joined now by Angela Knight, former CEO of Energy UK. Angela, good evening. Hi. So I wonder, is, and we've talked about this before, but are these tensions with Putin and Russia, and given what Liam Halligan's just said, about the sheer amount of energy, in particular, that comes out of Russia to the West. Does this hasten a bit of a rethink about the UK's energy policy? Yes, it does. It, and not just the UK's energy policy, it's actually Europe's energy policy. I, I mean, the country that is most affected, Nigel, by this is, of course, Germany, who has been increasingly reliant on imports and who decided for reasons which were local political reasons to shut down the nuclear power stations early and, of course, have shut down their coal-fired power stations. So for uh, Germany, they are hugely dependent on imported gas and the, uh, the fact that there are sanctions now taking place, the refusal to open Nord Stream 2, whilst I quite agree with you, there is Nord Stream 1, and by the way, there's a gas pipeline that comes through Ukraine as well. I mean, that is actually a big about turn for Germany. What one can't do, though, uh, Nigel, is actually turn back the book and, and say, well, there are decisions that were made that were wrong, there were policy that had not been thought through. What they have to do now, us uh, and um, Europe as well, is actually make some really firm decisions about how to become more self-sufficient, less reliant on imports. And if that means you keep your nuclear power stations running and you actually keep your coal-fired power stations running for the time being, then so be it. Yeah, I mean, where can Germany turn next? As you say, the political movement against nuclear in the wake particularly of Fukushima, not that I thought it was that relevant, but hey, that opposition to nuclear power is huge in Germany. It's, of course, completely opposite in France. I mean, presumably the Germans have to start mining coal again. Well, they are mining coal right now. I uh, read an article not so very long ago that that's exactly what they were doing. 
which um, one wonders actually what the Green Party and the very strong Green movement in Germany, and of course they are a coalition as opposed to a, um, you know, a coalition of lots of different views, and that's why some of these policies have been made the way they are. One wonders what the, the Greens are, are thinking now, because they, they have one of three choices. Uh, you either keep your nuclear running, you, you restart your coal-fired power stations, or you get cold and you shut down some of your industry. And it is literally those three choices. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it's come to a pretty past when the great economic powerhouse of Europe, which Germany is, you know, a fantastic uh, job that it has done in the whole of that manufacturing space, has made the sort of shambles of its energy policy that you would, dare I say, expect from a third world country. You know, and it's going to have ramifications right around the piece, this. And coming back home, of course, it's interesting to think that Nicola Sturgeon, to maintain her majority in Scotland, is, of course, in alliance with the Scottish Green Party. And that has seen an SNP who talked under Alex Salmon's leadership endlessly about the riches that would come from oil that meant Scotland yeah. could be independent and rich. And now the political mood music in Edinburgh, and indeed, it's not terribly encouraging from Westminster either, has led to that big Cambo oilfield project being scrapped. Yeah. Um, I yeah. can't see, I can't see Sturgeon necessarily changing her mind quickly, but do you, with all your political experience and knowledge of people in politics in London, do you think the atmosphere is right now for a different debate, perhaps about gas extraction, uh, perhaps even um, about the North Sea? Yes, I think there is. It is ripe uh, for a uh, a real change of view, and to some extent, some quick changes of view. Um, I've I have noticed that within the political uh, environment, um, the, the 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 discussion about you know alternatives are best, and we need that, all that sort of thing, that seems to have really quietened down. I wouldn't bank on Nicola Surgeon to do anything other. Uh, Nigel, than stand on a, some sort of public platform and say that the English have a right to keep uh, Scotland supplied with energy, you know, just like we're <laughs> supposed to be paying their pensions if they go off and do their own thing. You know, I mean, she does that. I think there's something where she says they want to keep on testing, so we've got to pay for their testing. Well, frankly, it's kind of nuts to that. You know, we live in the real world and she may sit on, stand on platforms, but that isn't the real world. The real world says that right now we've got to do everything we can to extract whatever we can in way of gas out of the North Sea. Yeah. And when you look at the price, that does mean that some of those wells which have not been particularly economic must now be economic. It must be well worth the while as well to get more gas out of some of the declining wells. I mean, it's more complicated business. It costs more money, but you can do it now. And if um, she won't grant drilling licenses, then we've got to uh, grant drilling licenses we have to do that. We need more gas during this transition. The focus yep. has never been on transition. And if you say that something good comes out of, of every crisis, realism about energy is going to come out of this one. Angela Knight, thank you very much indeed. Final word, Liam Halligan. Uh, your ear pretty close to the ground in Westminster. We've got the Net Zero group in Parliament, about 30, 40 Conservative MPs. And some Labour MPs. And some Labour MPs. From all parts of the Tory party. Does this start to grow? I think Boris Johnson now is under enormous 
pressure, I think. Angela Knight, former Treasury Minister, of course, yep. she knows her way around. Spoke very strongly about it. She did. Power. Uh, and, and, and I think she's exactly right. Look, it's not just household energy bills that are about to spike in April, up by 54 percent, according to the off-gen yep. price cap. And that's the average. That's the average. Yeah. It's business energy bills. It's those energy-intensive firms in red wall yeah. seats that employ lots of people, that have lots of dependents. They are the bread and butter, the livelihood of many, many households that Boris Johnson needs to carry in these May elections, let alone future general elections, if he makes it. So I think we are going to see some serious U-turns. I think the Treasury is already making noises, the business uh, uh, ministry is making noises about granting more North Sea licences. I mean, hold on to your hats, yeah. Nigel. We could even see, I would say, I wouldn't rule this out, a reversal of that moratorium on fracking quite soon. It'll need some pressure, but I think the wind has changed. In a moment, I get an historical perspective. I talked in my talk up at the beginning of the show, is this 1936 all over again? What does Putin really want to do? In a moment, a history lesson that will come from none other than David Starkey. So what next after the events of last night and today? That was the question I asked you. Some audience reaction. Kaz says, Putin is a law in himself. Time Britain frees all Russian money. Confiscate homes. Germany should build a pipeline to the North Sea. Forget the Russian gas. The situation is very dangerous. Another viewer says, respect wishes of people in autonomous regions, but negotiate with Putin to respect referendum on the issue with non-NATO Russian-aligned observers. You know, that is one possibility, isn't it? That a referendum is held in those breakaway states. This is President Joe Biden coming towards the end of his press conference. And he has laid out a list of sanctions that he says have been done in conjunction with European allies. He mentioned Nord Stream 2. We'd had the announcement earlier on from the German Chancellor of the halting of that. Interestingly, he mentioned sovereign debt. He said, and it wasn't just America, he said, we in the West are going to make it difficult for the Russians to raise money to issue bonds, basically, in the West. Uh, which does sound like a very tough sanction, although I suspect will drive Putin and Russia into the arms of the Chinese Communist Party. I'm joined now by Dr. Liam Fox, Conservative Member of Parliament for North Somerset, former Defence Secretary and International Trade Secretary. Liam, thank you very much on a busy day for joining us. Um, do these sanctions that we've put in place between Germany, us and the Americans, do they make any difference at all? Well, they'll make um, a difference. They'll make some increased difficulty in the Russians running their economy. But I think that we have to be very frank about the fact that there's a limit that can be achieved by sanctions in a country where you have a despot as leader who has never cared and is never likely to care about the implications and the impacts on ordinary Russians. It's not as though he's uh, responsive as we are in a democratic society. And I think it's been quite clear for some time what his in intentions are. I came across an article today that yeah, I wrote in the Daily Telegraph exactly seven years to the day, saying that we would ultimately have to arm the Ukrainians if we intended to stop Russia. And while we might achieve some of our aims by sanctions, um, and, and clearly there is a plan, a well-thought-out plan to be escalatory in these sanctions, we also have to recognise um, that ultimately 
if we want to guarantee the security of the people of Ukraine and their sovereignty and their rights under international law. Either we will have to provide them with the means of defending themselves or we'll have to come to a defence pact with them. Um, that is how you deal with uh, aggressors uh, like Putin. The, the, as President Biden was saying there, there is no threat from Ukraine. There is no justification for this action and there can be no excuses. It is a blatant act of aggression. Uh, and sooner or later, we have to stand up to that and we have to say um, we may be able to do a lot of things by sanctions. We may dissuade Russia. But anyone who heard President Putin the other night realizes this is a man on a mission to start recovering the, the empire that was lost under the, the breakup of the yeah. Soviet Union. Uh, Liam, I completely understand that. And, 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 you know, I get what you're saying. However, if the people living in Donetsk and Luhansk, if they overwhelmingly want to be part of Russia and not be part of Ukraine, it's not for us to stand in their way, is it? Well, Ukraine voted, if you remember, to be an independent nation as a single sovereign entity. Um, and it's not for President Putin to determine what the uh, future of those people may be. And this is one of the problems we have with Putin. He's got two reasons, I think, for not being able to qualify as a civilised member of the international community. The first is that he believes that the protection of ethnic Russians is the premise of the Kremlin, not the societies in which they live, their constitutions or their legal systems. That, of course, is unacceptable to, acceptable to us in terms of the concept of self-determination. And he still maintains this old KGB. Remember, he's an old KGB officer. The KGB view that Russia has a sphere of influence or, as they see it, a near abroad. In other words, that they should have a veto over the economic, political and foreign policy uh, of their immediate geographic neighbours. That, again, drives a coach and horses through our idea of international law. And this is really what it boils down to, Nigel. It's do we believe in international law or not? Do we want to live in a world where might is right, as Boris Johnson said today, yep. or do we actually want to have rules governing us? And, and, and sooner or later, it always boils down to this point where we have to make a decision whether we want to stand up for those values or let them to be trampled by a despot. Liam Fox, thank you very much indeed. Well, Liam Fox, very firm there in his views. And indeed, President Biden defending uh, NATO uh, more volubly than I've heard him before as president. Let's get the long view. Let's go to historian David Starkey. David, good evening. Hello, Nigel. Welcome. Now, is this 1936 all over again? Is this an empire that wants to expand piece by piece, leaving us unsure what to do? Are there comparisons between the two? Yes, full stop. I mean, we haven't really, I think, got the measure of Putin. I mean, the measure of Putin is who first conquers the, the Ukraine for Russia. It's Peter the Great and it's Catherine the Great. And he sees himself as their direct heir. It's not that he's reconstituting the Soviet Union. He is reconstituting the Tsarist Empire. That's what we've got to understand. Um, when he gave that bizarre speech that he did, that's what's running in his mind. That's what he's doing. When, when he sits like an emperor, look at those scenes with the Russian Security Council, these little people sort of shrinking round the edge of a vast czarist rotunda, him there looking rather like the Russian Richard III or Ivan the Terrible. This is what we're dealing with. And the trouble is, he can do it. He's got power like the czars. We have given up using power. 
Everybody says Russia, oh, it's only the economy the size of Spain or Italy. That's not the measure. The measure is how much of its resources it's prepared to spend on war. Do you know how much we spend on defence? So what are the limits, David? What are the limits to his potential expansion? Just trying to understand it. He spends, he effectively spends between one-third and two-thirds of the entire energy of the state on war. And moreover, the comparison isn't a dollar-to-dollar comparison, because labour is cheap in Russia. He can afford these vast armies. We have nothing. This is the great difference, by the way, with 1936. In 1936, we were still a great power. We had an empire. We had the vast resources. One thing and one thing only will stop Putin, and it's what we're not prepared to do, which is to fight. I'm sorry. Power is brutal. There's no point in Liam Fox talking about international law. All law depends on force. The reason that we've had the liberal world order is because the world great power, America, was prepared to fight. Let's be honest. America is no longer prepared to fight. And does that mean, David Starkey, that Putin's potential ambitions extend into countries that are currently in NATO? He would dearly love to. But, of course... That would, I mean, not even Biden could refuse to honour the NATO doctrine, that if one is attacked, all is attacked. And by the way, you know, the key, the key place in all of this is Vilnius in Lithuania. Uh, have you ever been? It's extraordinary yes. you go and stand there, and there's a big plaque in the town hall, and it says here George W. Bush stood and said that an enemy of the freedom of the Lithuanian people is an enemy of the United States of America. That is where it stops. And if it doesn't, God help us. David Starkey, strong words. Wow, fascinating words. In a moment, a change of gear. I'll be joined on Talking Pints by East End boy done good, Tony Cotter, Cossy, prolific goal scorer uh, and a man who's going to tell us where the Premier League is going. It's Talking Pints. The GB News Tavern is open. And after what David Starkey just said, I think we probably all could do with a drink, actually. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> that was scary, wasn't it? It was scary. <laughs> Tony Cotty. Lovely well to see you. Lovely to see you. Very good to see you. It was a bit scary, wasn't it? It's a frightening world. It's the last thing we need. We've all had two horrible years, haven't we, with COVID, and now you've got all this going on, and it's, uh, it's worrying, very worrying. He made a point, didn't he, about us, you know, not having the resolve anymore. Mm. Um, you know, I guess we have cut back our armed forces a fair bit, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, th- I think, you know, we were so well prepared for the First and the Second World War, but you imagine with the youngsters now, you know, and I, I've got two 24-year-old boys. I wouldn't want them to go to war. You know, no. you, you wouldn't want them to do it. And no. as a parent, I would say, you're not going. Well, Whereas it was the complete opposite, wasn't it, I think years gone by? Maybe 1914, there were a few starry eyes well, yeah, around. Maybe, yeah. but <laughs> I think for the Second War, people have woken yeah. up to it all. But Now, Tony, East End boy. Mm. East End born and bred. Yep. And obviously, football must have been the great love growing up, the great consuming passion growing up. And you get to play for West Ham. For my team. I mean... Did your whole family support the club? Yeah, absolutely. Mum, dad, um, aunts, uncles, granddads, nans, the whole family. 
Um, originally, I lived in East Ham uh, for about 18 months, and like many EastEnders, moved out to sunny Essex. Yeah. Um, but the family was very much West Ham, and I, I, I think... I know all clubs are different, but I think West Ham fans are a little bit different. I think you, as a dad, you, you, you don't ask your son to support West Ham. You tell him to support West Ham. <laughs> I was told quite well, clearly you will support well, West Ham. I don't know about look. yourself, but... Let's have a look at <laughs> Tony Cotty on his debut against Tottenham Hotspur in 1983. Out of compromise. The referee got Pike to take the ball back and the wall to go back as well. I'm surprised that's in colour. <laughs> <laughs> that must have felt unbelievable. Oh, well, I mean, as a fan, I, I mean, I left school at 15, um, yeah. done my apprenticeship at West Ham, and then within 18 months, that was what I was doing. So for me to be playing with great names like Phil Parks, Alan Devonshire, Ray Stewart, Alvin Martin, you remember the names, some great players, and all of a sudden I was doing that. And it, you, know, you can see when I scored that goal, it was like, oh my God, what do I do? Because it's my first goal, you know, and I just sort of running. And it's like, amazing. And, yeah, but incredible, you, really. But, when but you, you went on through your career, you played for quite a few clubs, but you scored a lot of goals, didn't you? I did, yeah. It, do you know what, Nigel? It was something that came easy to me. I think if you ask a lot of footballers... About, about 300 first-class goals. Yeah, sure. 300 goals. And if you, if you ask a lot of footballers, they will say that the hardest thing for them is to score goals. And I almost found it the easiest thing. It was, it was the rest of the game I struggled with, running around and being part of a team, etc. You know, But scoring goals, I think I was, I was born with a God-given talent. There's no doubt about that. But you then have to harness it. You have to be dedicated and all the things to become a footballer. It's not easy to become a footballer. You know, and I had to go through and sacrifice things. It's the dream for so many, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I was, I was reading the other day, though. So they, you make it. Yeah, well, they, uh, there was a thing in the paper. They said uh, uh, the academy kids that get taken on, 97% don't make it into the first team. 97%. And, you know, I was one of the 3%. So, you know, amazing stats, really. England. You played for England. I did. But not as many games as you might have liked. No, I had these two um, not very good players called Lineker and Beardsley in front of me. <laughs> uh, I'm joking, obviously. You know, they, they had a wonderful partnership yeah. and I, I, I was just a little bit unlucky. Like, uh, But there's been so many great players. I can think of Billy Bonds, Julian Dix, Steve Bruce, for example, Mark, Mark Noble playing for West Ham, who all perhaps should have played for England. Just didn't quite get the caps, and I played seven times, so I'm very proud of that. No, I no, I bet you are. And, and Tony, there you were. It was in those days. It was the first division. Yep. Um, wasn't the Premier League? No. Yeah, and you missed that by a few years. I crossed into the Premier League, Nigel. Yeah, I. So had you did I, play Premier League. Yeah, yeah, I had nine okay. years in the first division, eight years in the Premier League. How much money were you earning at West Ham in 1983? Um, I can tell you the answer to that. I was top scorer for West Ham. I, I was. I scored 19 goals as an 18 year old, and I was on 110 pound a week. Right. <laughs> I'm glad you find it funny. <laughs> well, I bet no, I mean, football's it, changed, isn't it? It's but, changed. Uh, imagine an, imagine a, an 18-year-old now scoring 19 goals in his first season. Would be earning. You would get 40, 50 grand a week straight away thrown at you. And that, you know, I mean, the money is just incredible now in football. Do you think, I mean, generation before you, of course. Yeah. Or two generations before you, the Stanley Matthews yeah, and great Bobby player. Moore, Jimmy Greaves, I mean, the great Jimmy Greaves. I mean, these were they were earning very little money. They was, yeah. And of course, you had Johnny Haynes as the first first uh, hundred pound a week footballer. So the great progress has been made. And you know, I, am I jealous? Yeah, of course I am. I'd love to earn that sort of money. Of course I would. I, if I said otherwise, people would look at me and say, you know, you're telling lies. You know, but I'd love to have made that money. But I had a great. I played in a great era, the 80s and the 90s. We had wonderful com camaraderie, team spirit. Uh, great time to be a footballer, but we just didn't get rewarded as much as we should have done. Now they get the great rewards and you don't even have to be a good player. 
Well, now they're getting... <laughs> it's true, though, isn't it? <laughs> That's a typical old pro. <laughs> yeah, I said I, I'm not bitter yeah, and twisted. That's the sort of thing Jeffrey Boycott said. <laughs> okay, what about cricket? <laughs> but the money now is massive. Mm. Huge amounts of money. And yet, the behaviour... I mean, I know that footballers in your day liked to drink and yep. went out and clubbed and yep. some went a bit too far. Yep. But we've had a spate, haven't we, of footballers getting into really serious trouble. Yep. And, of course, with the mobile phones nowadays, everything is out there, isn't it? And, you know, I mean, we all know what happened with Kurt Zuma with the cat incident, and that's yes. because of a mobile phone. And, of course, in my day, you didn't have the mobile phone, so I'm not saying that footballers were running around kicking cats in those days because I'm, I'm very, quite very sure they wasn't, that. but... You know, there was a lot of things that went on and were going on that were never filmed and never reported because you didn't have the, you know, the big interest with the media. So, you know, footballers have to be careful. So your private life was a bit more private then? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always said we, you know, we went to great detail to make sure no one knew what we was doing. Now I think everyone wants to get on <laughs> all, the, all the channels and look what I'm doing. And, and, and you, know, to, you know, it's not funny. The, the cat incident wasn't funny. And there's been other incidents as well with footballers. But it's always been going on. It's just that much more high. I mean, the Premier League itself is a phenomenon, yeah. isn't it? Isn't Worldwide it? as well. You know, you were there yeah. at the beginning of it and it's just grown and grown and grown, and you get into a taxi now. You know, I'm off to America tomorrow, actually, and I get, I get into a taxi, mm. particularly on the East Coast, anywhere yep. on the East Coast, and the first question the cab driver asks you, what team do you... Yeah, they hear the accent. Yep. It's what team do you support? Yep. You know, Premier League matches in New York, the sports bars are overflowing onto the street. Doesn't matter what time of day or night it is. Yep. You know, so it's become a huge global thing, and, you know, it's our Premier League that dominates yeah. the whole thing. Um, so it, on the one hand, it's this fantastic success. You know, it's kind of global Britain. Yep. This is where the great stars yep. of the world want to come. On the other, I've mentioned you know, the behaviour mm. of some individuals. Mm. But what kind of state is English football really in? When? Since we've come back to crowds attending mm. grounds, we've got quite a big spike in violence and yep. disorder. Yep. I'm not talking just Premier League now, I'm talking right the way Lower down. Leagues, yeah. Now, this could be a result of everyone being cooped up for a couple of years and mm. they're back out again and don't quite, know how about, don't quite know how to behave. And, you know, when I walked down Wembley Way last July to that European final, mm. I, mean, it, I mean, it was almost, and perhaps, I can't, I can't say it was a war zone because it wasn't, but it, might have, but it might well have been. The atmosphere was aggressive, nasty... There were cans flying through the air. It was horrific. It was a throwback to the bad old days of the 80s, wasn't it? And, you know, it was unacceptable. And I, I think as a result of that, I think the FA have been put off going for the 2030 World Cup. We're not going to get it, are we? We're not going to get it. Absolutely not. But we're, we're probably going to get the 2028 20, Euros. But, you know, it appears that not a lot of the countries want to host the Euros. So we will get the Euros. But when you think 1966 was the last time we had the World Cup, and, you know, we're, we seem to be even further away from getting it than ever. Um, but in, in general terms, you've got to say football's in a much better place in terms of the 70s and the 80s with all the hooliganism, the racism. You know, there's, of course we can do better and, of course, there's room for improvement. But it's so much better than what it was back in those days. And I think nowadays you can take a family to football, whereas you couldn't do that in the 70s. No, it was very, very tribal. And, and also, just going back to the Premier League point, it's one of our greatest exports. It's a fant we, we no. don't realise, do we? We don't realise in the UK, unless you go to another country like what you're going to be doing tomorrow, yeah. you don't realise just how great and how big the Premier League is. And I think the foreign rights are now higher than the domestic rights for the first time. 
So there's a lot going, going well in football. It's just the little bad things we've got to get rid of. Your best moment in your career? Um, my debut for West Ham, which we just saw. Um, I, I scored a hat-trick on my debut for Everton. Um, and, of course, representing your, your country, playing for England was great. And then when I was at Leicester in my, my sort of late days in, in the late 90s, I won my one and only trophy playing for Leicester. So, um, I mean, I had three great clubs and played for your country, but wonderful time. Yeah, now that's pretty cool, isn't yeah. it, really? And the best player you ever saw? Uh, I think of my generation, well, there's two that spring to mind immediately. Gaza, from an English point of view, yeah. and Diego Maradona, I think my generation. I was just after Pelé, and of course you've now got Messi and Ronaldo, two yeah. wonderful players. The hand of God, Maradona. Hand of God. Exactly. Poor old Peter Schultz. I know, I know. He's never forgiven, he's no. never forgotten it, and nor But what a player. You were, yeah, I mean, that first goal you're talking about, but the second goal when he ran from the halfway line was Oh, incredible. no, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And poor old Gaza, you know, such a popular... Yeah. Everyone loved him. Yeah. That World Cup run we had through to the semis. Yeah. And what a, what a shame. It is. And, you know, Gaza, Gaza love football. Um, you know, it, it's hard. When you retire from football, people don't understand because, you, you know, where do you go to get that adulation playing in front of the fans? And Gaza lost that but, and he loved playing football. I, 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 I'm not worried about playing football, you know. But you got commentary. You got commentary, didn't you? Yeah, I've been, you got involved in commentary. I got involved with broadcasting, yeah, which helped me. I think, you know, if I hadn't got involved in the broadcasting, yeah, I dread to think where I'd be. And there's a, a lot of players who don't get that opportunity and, you know, you read all the time. I was just reading on the train up today about a player who played for Birmingham having mental problems and yeah. it's a big, big problem for footballers because you lose that adulation of playing in front of thousands of But fans. you were at Sky, you were commentating at Sky for 20 years. Yeah, long time. And suddenly, mm. men of a certain age... <laughs> Well, it does seem... Sometimes you don't have to say anything, Nigel. It, it, I'm allowing you to say it, it for It seems me. at Sky that, uh, shall I say, middle-aged white guys suddenly weren't wanted it. Do you know, it's, it's a great shame because I had 20 wonderful years at Sky. I really did. And, yeah. you know, to, to work for a company for 20 years was great. And it, it was time to move on. And, you know, I'm looking at other things, other projects now. And, uh, you know, there's no regrets. I don't look back and think, oh, that was, you know, rubbish. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time and it's time to move on and... You know, 20 years as a footballer, 20 years as a broadcaster, and we'll see what the next 20 years the are. The next stage to come. Teddy Cardi, thank you very much indeed for joining me on Talking Pints. Very good. We've got a few minutes left on the show. There's no other breaking news, I'm pleased to say. Uh, and it's time for Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in and I do my very best cold to answer them. Joe asks me, do you think UEFA, or oh, please Tony stayed, do you think UEFA should stop Russia hosting the Champions League final? Yes, 100%. I think, you know, we've got to take a stand with things and there's certain things we can do from a sporting point of view. Yes. You cannot have the Champions League final in Russia. It's got to be moved, whether it's Wembley or wherever. Just put it somewhere else in Europe. I'm with Tony. I am pleased you stayed. <laughs> <laughs> Ian asks, do you think this government will ever be radical and actually cut red? I think Tate perhaps was missing off the end of that. Um, look, I did hear today that the UK insurance industry are in talks with the government and they're talking about a very major EU directive that has, that's held insurance companies back very, very badly. There are now at least active discussions to try and help Britain's businesses and get the benefits from Brexit that we deserve. Big changes bring upsides and downsides. Moving house brings an upside and a downside. We need more of the upside. Terry asks, do you agree that Canada... I know better than China, Russia, North Korea and other repressive regimes. I think 
I have to say, I think that Trudeau is one of the most appalling leaders any Western world country has ever had. He masquerades as being this lovely, cheery, wonderful liberal and actually has behaved in the most appalling authoritarian way. I'm pretty disgusted. Mickey asks, people are sick to death of the mantra, protect the NHS, when the NHS is not protecting them. Is it time to remove GPs? From the system. Now, you can't remove GPs from the system, but you could make GPs start to see patients again. That wouldn't be bad, would it? Um, and I think there is a very major health crisis coming to this country. I was worried about it even before the pandemic struck. But now the backlogs, six million, six million people in England and Wales alone waiting for operations. It's going to be a huge task for any government to turn this around. And it's going to need not just money, but a completely different approach. And I'll be doing a health special an hour-long health special tomorrow here on GB News. I'm going to pre-record it this evening after this show. Robert asks, should universities refund money to students for failing to provide a satisfactory teaching programme? It is an outrage. They've been ripped off terribly. Uh, and, of course, the student loans, they have to pay vast 6% interest on it. The whole thing is disgusting. Uh, I, really, universities should be hanging their heads in shame. I'm done for now.